Mark chapter 3. So uh, our passage tonight is really rich and, and um, you know, it, it's, it's such a rich passage and, and Lord willing, we'll be encouraged and built up by it. But it's also historically been a very misunderstood passage and because of that it's caused, un, the passage hasn't, but the misunderstanding has caused unnecessary fear and anxiety and, and doubt. Um, and so it, it's a fascinating passage. So what I want to do is read and then we'll come back and, and work our way through it. So I'm going to start in verse 20. This is after Jesus has called the 12 disciples, most of whom became apostles. It says this, Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat about him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let's pray one more time. Lord, love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we can spend together studying it. And I pray that by your spirit that you would speak to us. I pray that you'd clear my thoughts of anything other than your truth, that you'd guide me, that you'd bring back what I've studied. And I pray that it would be used for the edification of your church. I pray that misconceptions would be cleared up, but also that we would leave encouraged and built up and drawn closer to you. I love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So the misconceptions really surround the heart of the passage that we read were what's called the, the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin, the idea that there's a, a point of no return that can be crossed where in this life you, you don't have opportunity to repent and, and to be saved, to be rescued, that there's something that you can do. Uh, and, and so and that's, that's taken on a lot of different thoughts throughout the centuries. You know, some people would say, well, the, the unforgivable sin is persisting in adultery or, or homosexuality or it's taking your own life, that if a person takes their own life, they've committed the, the unforgivable sin. And all these different teachings that have been suggested 
you know, down through the ages, or maybe it's just that uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a certain type of sin, but it's just you, do, you continue in sin, period, or that it's the only thing that's unforgivable is if you don't repent on your deathbed. So up until that point, there's opportunity, but if you pass into the next life without having repented at all, that's the unforgivable sin. So all these different thoughts. And so, you know, I think questions, though, that come out of that is, okay, is, there, is Jesus really teaching that there's an unforgivable sin, that there's a point of no return in this life? You know, can, it, can a believer commit the unforgivable sin? If so, what, what would that look like? You know, and, or is this just, is it not for us today at all? Is this specific to uh, this group of people at this time that were standing around Jesus? And so that's what I want to get to because I was reminded, uh, Sarah, my wife, reminded me of this when we were talking through the passage earlier in the week. She said, do you remember, uh, and some of you will, some of you won't because you weren't alive, but because to me, this was like five years ago, which I've realized, and I don't know if this keeps happening as you get older, where everything, like every memory I have, I'm like, oh, that was like five years ago, 17, 17 years ago. But so 17 years ago, there was this group of atheists and they started this, uh, what they called the blasphemy challenge. You remember that? And, and it was one of the first things on YouTube, I guess, because that's where they were posting. And it, it was supposed to be this act of solidarity amongst people who are atheistic, where they would come out and that they're so, they're so firm in their belief that there's no God. And because they believe that there's no God, there's no you know, expectation of heaven, but also no fear of hell. And they're so sure of that, that what they were agreeing to do together is to post these videos of them saying, I deny or I denounce the Holy Spirit, thinking that they're taking the teaching of Jesus and committing the unforgivable sin. You tracking with that? So there's all these videos that you can still go watch. I went and watched some of them today. They're still sad and heartbreaking, but in a lot of ways... It's just another misconception. They think that they're saying, uh, like they have a formula or recipe. If they say these words in this order, then they've in the in Jesus's teaching, they've cut themselves off forever. That if there is a God or if there is a heaven, they're rejecting that and they're embracing hell. Which I think, as we unpack it, we'll see. I, I would hold out hope for those folks that are still alive that. No, you can, you can repent and be forgiven. So, hopefully those, those things will be unpacked as we move forward. But the first thing that we see, if you go back to verse 20, and I think Mark does this intentionally, where he bookends this section of Scripture with the interaction with the family of Jesus. Verse 20, then he went home. Uh, this would have been in Capernaum, right? This isn't that he went home to his family in Nazareth. This, this means he went back to like where he was basing his ministry out of. Uh, most likely, this is Peter's home. And he, and he went home, and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. We saw that a lot last week where the crowds are so pressing in on Jesus and there's so much demand for his attention because of that he's teaching with authority. You'll remember this where 
what the people are walking away from his sermons going, okay, he teaches with an authority and a power that the scribes and the Pharisees don't have. But then he's also healing people. He, he's casting demons out of people. He's freeing them. He's freeing them from physical ailments. And so the crowds keep growing and growing to the point where the demands are so much, the way that Mark writes it is, they couldn't even eat. They couldn't catch a break. They, 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 couldn't, they didn't have time to dip out the back and go grab lunch. And when his family heard it, now technically the word here doesn't have to be family. It could just be those closest to him. But it would seem in the context, especially at the end of the passage where he comes back to Mary and his brothers being present, that this is his family um, that come and they want to, it says, seize him. Literally, it means like arrest him. Uh, The idea is they want to come get him and force him back home. They're concerned for him. I think benefit of the doubt would say, man, they're worried about their brother. He, he's not taking care of himself. He's got this huge following. He's got to be out of his mind. What's he doing? They're concerned for his physical and, I think, mental state. And they want to bring him back home. They want to get him out of the spotlight. Uh, personally, I, I don't think that Mary would be involved in that. I don't think it's necessary to make that case. I think Mary, all we ever see of Mary in Scripture is that she's held up as, as like an ideal disciple. She receives the gospel from Gabriel. She believes it. And, and even when Jesus, as, at 12 years old, when he's teaching and she questions him, and he says, I have to be about my father's business, even at that point, it says that Mary thought that over, that she pondered who Jesus is and what he's doing. So I don't think she would have been involved with trying to get him out of ministry as much as this is probably the brothers and sisters of, of, of Jesus, the half-brothers and sisters. But it says this, that he's, they thought he was out of his mind, that he was out of his mind. So in our passage, we see like really two main accusations against Christ. One, that he's out of his mind, that he's crazy. And the second one that we've read over and that we'll, we'll dive back into, that he's, he's possessed, that, he, that he's evil. And I, I'm not sure, but I think this is where C.S. Lewis got his whole liar, lunatic, or Lord argument from. And I don't know, you've probably heard that before, right? I, I don't know if you've ever heard the whole the longer quotation, it's out of the case for Christianity, but I wanted to read you that quote from C.S. Lewis, the point that he's making about, okay, why would, why would people think this? Why would they think that he's crazy? Why would they think that he's out of his mind? Why would they think that he's a liar? Not just a liar, but I mean like demonic in the deception that he would be bringing on people. He lays it out here. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people, in, that people often say about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, 
or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with any condescending nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left room for that. He didn't intend to. So they come and they think he's out of his mind, but it doesn't, even, it doesn't give us an answer to that. It just goes right into the accusation of the scribes and the Pharisees. But I wanted to pause because, and we'll, we'll come back to what Jesus says, but I want to pause because I think Jesus told us this. He, he told us to expect this. Like, if, if you and I are following Jesus for taking serious what it means that, okay, to be a disciple is to follow Jesus, that I would be being conformed to the image of Christ, that I'm having my mind renewed by Scripture, and the best that I know how, I'm, I'm living in obedience. Then what we should expect is that people are going to say similar things about us as they did about Jesus. And I don't know, I just got to thinking that there might be some of y'all that this week you'll go home or maybe you'll have family come in and you'll be around people that knew you before your relationship with Christ and, and that you're still trying to be in relationship with them now and to them, they don't understand. They don't understand the decisions you make. They don't understand the way that you've chosen to live your life and maybe what you let go of or you walked away from or you don't partake in anymore and in their mind, man, that, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's insane. It, it doesn't make sense. And I would encourage you, man, we're, we're in good company. Like that, that is, that as a believer, it should make us sad for them, but not for us. Like whatever from the world's perspective, it would seem like we're giving up in order to follow Jesus faithfully. Man, we know it's nothing. Those are, those are temporary, passing, superficial things. What we're getting, the payoff is that, yeah, we're getting Christ. We get Christ. We get Jesus. And we want them to get that. So I encourage you, man, if that's the situation you're walking back into, man, rejoice that you get the opportunity to love those people, to not feel like you have to win some sort of argument, but you get to love them and show them, man, the, the love of Christ through how you serve them, and, and Lord willing that you'd get a chance to sit down and explain to them, this is why I follow Jesus, because I believe he is who he said he is. And I think this, you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you. I think this, if Jesus is who he said he is, for me, it's, it, it, it's all on the resurrection, right? If Jesus rose from the dead, if he satisfied God's wrath for our sins, if he went to the cross and met all the legal demands that were against us, if he did that because he is fully human, but also fully God, but not born into the sin that you and I are born into, he lived that righteous life, he died that sacrificial death, and then he rose again in victory, if that's true, then the most sane, logical, rational thing you can do is submit to him is believe every word that he says and then obey it. That's saying, 
That's logical. The most, the, the craziest thing you can do is say that I believe those things about Jesus and then ignore it. Then just check in every once in a while. The most irrational thing you can do is say, oh, I see who Jesus is, but I'm gonna do my own thing. That's crazy. God became one of us to not only save us, but to guide us and lead us. So rejoice at the opportunity that, that you have. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, but know you have a family here that supports you and understands. So now the easy part, verse 22. And the scribes who came down, so this is, uh, we know there's a parallel account in Matthew And then there's a very similar account in Luke, same teaching in Luke, but just a different occasion. But it would seem that Matthew's account is the same occasion as what we have here. So we know that the the scribes have come down from uh, Jerusalem, scribes or Pharisees. And what seems to be going on is that the Sanhedrin, right, the, the religious leaders of Israel, have collaborated together, and they're in agreement, like, Jesus must be destroyed, So we've already seen that in our journey in Mark. They're jealous. They hate him. They've got nothing good for him. They want to trick him, trap him, destroy him. That's their goal. And so this crowd is still following Jesus. But what they can't do is deny what he's doing. There's too many witnesses to all the miracles. So they can't come up and be like, nah, man, he's just, he's, he's a liar, like, he, he, he's crazy. They can't discount him in that way. They've got to take it a step further and say, he's a liar and what he's, because what he's doing is empowered by Satan. So that's kind of like coming out of Jerusalem. That's the party line. That's the angle they're trying to take to discredit Jesus in the eyes of all the people. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So they're saying that that's Beelzebul. Uh, it's, it's a name that they gave to Satan. It's based off of, you probably remember from the Old Testament, uh, Beelzebub. And it was a Canaanite god or deity. And it's a change in name a little bit, change in what it means. But basically, they used it as a nickname for Satan. And so they're saying, literally what they're saying is, Jesus of Nazareth. He is performing these miracles. At Matthew's account, what we hear is there's a man who's blind uh, or he's deaf and mute and he's, he's possessed. He's oppressed by a demon and Jesus casts the demon out and heals him. And this conversation happens right on the heels of that. And they're saying, oh yeah, he has the power to do that, to cast out those demons because he serves Satan. I'm pausing to let that sink in. They're saying, these men who've come down from Jerusalem, the scribes, right, the Pharisees, the legal experts, the people who should have known like all the promises, all the prophecies of who the Messiah would be and what he would do when he got here, they're saying Jesus does those same things, but he's doing them by the power of Satan because he serves Satan. Now, right here, Jesus is so gracious, so gracious. Um, Matthew says, Matthew tells us in his account that he, he knows their, their thoughts, 
right? He knows what they're saying. He knows what they're spreading among the crowd. And this happens, you'll see it in all the different gospels. Even in John, you see it. They're spreading. This is what they're telling people. Oh, no, no, he's, he's demonic. And you got people going, How? no, that, that can't be right. No one can do the things he does unless God is with him. A demon wouldn't do this. And, and so, but Jesus in his grace calls them aside. Do you see it? He calls them to him, and he's going to first logically break down their argument. You see it? Verse 23, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end, right? He's saying, yeah, if he divides his house, it's crashing down on him. He's like, it doesn't even make sense. Your accusation doesn't make any sense against me. If I'm doing this by the power of Satan, then Satan is working against himself because what I'm doing is freeing people from demonic power and influence and the consequence of sin in their lives. Why would Satan work against himself? He's saying that, that doesn't even make sense. Why would Satan attack his own kingdom undermine his own dominion, the answer is he wouldn't. He wouldn't do that. But I love this part right here, verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So in this parable, or this level of the parable, Jesus says this. He's like, all right, you guys get it, right? If Satan's against himself, he, he knows he's going to be undone. He's not doing that. In fact, though, you, you know, if somebody's going to break into a house, if a thief is going to go into a house, and there's a strong man that lives there, he doesn't just walk in and start trying to grab stuff. He first has to deal with the strong man. But if he can get him tied up, then he, can take what, then he can take whatever he wants. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the man taking whatever I want. <laughs> he says, no, I've come into Satan's dominion. This is Satan's dominion. From, from the time of the garden when he usurped the authority that Adam had over creation and lied to him and that lie brought sin and death and everything got turned upside down, Satan took dominion. And what Jesus is saying is, no, I've, now I've come into that to make it all right, to take back what is really mine, but he's, he first has to bind the enemy. And what he's saying is, I've overpowered Satan. The reason why you see me casting out demons and healing people is because I'm overpowering Satan. And we, we see that start to happen in the, the temptations in the wilderness. Satan is defeated. Every time he heals somebody, every time he frees them from a demon, every time he proclaims the gospel, Jesus is showing and demonstrating he has power and authority over Satan. That, yeah, this dominion of death, this kingdom of darkness, its days are numbered. And it's going to give way to the kingdom of the Son of God's love, the kingdom of truth and light, uh, everlasting kingdom. So Jesus is saying, I've, I've come in and I've bound the enemy. So 
So, he tells him that. He's explaining, no, I'm doing, in Matthew's gospel, he tells him, okay, you're saying I'm doing this by the power of Satan, but if I'm doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come to you and is in your presence. Because remember, these are the guys, they're supposed to recognize that. They should have seen the signs that Jesus was accomplishing and known, oh, he has to be the Messiah. He has to be the Christ. And so he says, yeah, like, if I'm doing this by the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God is here right now. Verse 26, 28. Truly I say to you, See that a lot in the Gospels. Jesus say that truly, and sometimes they'll say truly, truly, or literally, amen. Uh, Jesus uses this all the time. And he's use, he uses it to emphasize what he's about to say. Like it's a, it's a solemn moment that he's drawing attention to, that the truthfulness and the weight of what he's about to say, which should get our attention, is worth pausing to emphasize for us, because everything Jesus said literally was the word of God, right? He is God, so when he's speaking, he speaks the word of God, but then he comes to these certain moments and he's like, okay, pay attention. When the answer should be, oh, I'm paying attention to everything you say because you're God, and he's saying, right, now pay even greater attention. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So he brings them aside, and again, this is gracious, because he's not saying to them, they've already committed this, and they're past the point of no, no return. If that was the case, I don't think we'd have this passage. He's warning them. In his grace, he's warning them. And he says, you're in, you're in danger of committing the unforgivable sin. But before we jump over and look at that, what does he say first? This is one, because there are, and maybe you've been there before, maybe you're there now, or hopefully you, if, you, if you've not been there, you won't ever be there because you can see what this passage is really saying. But if you've ever really been in a fearful moment of, I think, I think I blew it. I think at some point I committed the unforgivable sin or I committed apostasy and there is no hope for me. Like so often like people find that, they see the warning and they just get sucked into it and they only think negatively about themselves and they misinterpret it. When to do that, you have to jump over the first thing he says. What does he say first? I heard it, don't be afraid. All sins will be forgiven, the sons of men. All sins. Blasphemies. And so, I mean, to first, before we wrestle with, okay, what's this one thing that he's talking about, let's put it in context. Like Jesus is saying, all sins can be forgiven. Like your sin is not greater than the grace of God. Whatever wickedness you've accomplished in your short time on earth, it's not greater than the life, death, and resurrection that Jesus accomplished. Forgiveness is available. Grace is available. 
That's what Christ is offering. And so within that context, he's saying, listen, everything can be forgiven. So, so let, me, let me read this to you. Y'all with me? Good. Here we go. All right. This is from Kent Hughes. He said, the question is, what is the unforgivable sin? This unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. First, let us note what it is not. It's not cursing the Holy Spirit, right? Like what we talked about, the blasphemy challenge. It's not that. When they were saying, I, den- I deny or denounce the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's, that's a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. It's not cursing the Holy Spirit. It's not taking the Lord's name in vain, though that cert- is certainly a vile sin. It is not adultery or sexual perversion, homosexuality. It's not murder, even multiple murders or genocide. It's not suicide. Very simply, it is the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. I'm going to read that again. Very simply, It is the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. It is the perversion in the heart that chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. It is continuing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit, whether that witness be a quiet witness in the conscience the rational witness of the word, or even miracles and wonders. So, what he's saying there is, yes, it's not all those other things. The things that people typically are fearful of. Oh, I committed this sin, or I committed this sin too many times. That's not the unforgivable sin. That's not. And and I would pause here and say this. Anybody, and and this is like everybody who's ever preached this text says this. Uh, I found Spurgeon saying it however long ago. Like, if you're worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, if you're worried that you've passed the point of no return, if you're fearful or anxious, like if that's the state of your heart and your mind, then you can actually rest assured you haven't. Because the case that's being built here is the case of somebody who all they have is venom for Jesus. There is no concern for their eternal soul. There is no desire to repent and to ask for forgiveness. That doesn't exist. So what, what is this? What's going on? What, what is the unforgivable sin? So these, these men that are standing around him, what he's warning them of is they've had the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember when, when we pointed out that Jesus is a, he, he knows their thoughts? They know Jesus is the Messiah. They see all the signs. They have the signs as a witness from the Holy Spirit that Jesus is who he claims to be. And instead of submitting to him, following him, obeying him, they knowingly, consistently, from a hard heart, are saying, he's Satan. He's demonic. He's evil. That's a very specific case. 
I wouldn't go so far as to say that somebody couldn't commit this sin now, but it is very specific. They're looking at the tangible workings of the Holy Spirit as signs and wonders to prove that Jesus is who he claims to be. And they're saying, no, 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 you're satanic, you're the devil. That's how hard their heart is. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness, here it is, while God also bore witness to what? The message of salvation preached by Jesus. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the point is, don't, don't miss it, right? Don't miss what the Holy Spirit is putting on display. And these guys are, but they're doing it intentionally. And so I, I think it's possible that somebody could, like what the writer of Hebrews talks about, where, yeah, the Holy Spirit can illuminate somebody's mind, that they can hear the word preached, that the Holy, this is what the Holy Spirit has gone into the world to do, is to convict people of sin and shine a light on who Jesus is. A person could potentially, yeah, like they should, could so ignore that and push that off, but to go the extra step and say, okay, not only do I reject Jesus, but he's satanic. He's a servant of Satan. It's a very specific sin. And I think, again, that if anybody was ever concerned that they had committed it, no, you haven't. Because the person who's in that state, he's not worried. He's not concerned. Again, all he has is venom towards Jesus. So you can ask the question this way. Could a believer commit the, the unforgivable sin, I would argue no. I'd say no. Because what's true of the believer? What is the believer's relationship with the Holy Spirit? Sealed, right? The Holy Spirit is sealed. So what the, what the Bible does, though, is it warns believers, yeah, don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, but that's an argument made from within a relationship, don't, don't make the Holy Spirit sorrowful as you persist in sin. L listen to what he says in Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. He said, I mean, don't, don't make the Holy Spirit sad by exposing him because the relationship between you and the Spirit is so close. Do you see it? In the same breath that he's saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, what's he assuring us of? Our security within the relationship. Why are we so close? How do we even have the opportunity to grieve him? Oh, because he sealed us for the day of redemption. What can undo that seal? Good answer, nothing, right? Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit is a seal of that truth. The only reason we can grieve him with what he lays out here, slander, right? Saying ugly things about people, anger, wrath, is because, because we have the relationship. That, that is very different from what he's warning these Pharisees about. 
attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to expose who Christ is to Satan. So, Lord willing, if, and I don't know, I, in studying this week came across so many stories of, yeah, people who, and maybe it's no one here, but maybe there are people that you know that they think that they've gone too far, that they've passed the point of no return, and their response to that is not to come beg for mercy, but is to just, to continue on in sin. And maybe they don't articulate it as cleanly as you, the passage lays out, but maybe they just think, I mean, you don't know. Like, I, I've, just, I've done too much. I've sinned too much. There's no way God can forgive me. And so their application to that is, so I'm just going to continue on. And maybe this week, how awesome would it be to have opportunity to, to say the, the truth that you already know? No, your, your sin's not greater than God's grace. Your persistence in wickedness is not greater than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That his righteousness that he earned by his life and his atoning death on the cross where he absorbed God's wrath, it's greater. It's greater than whatever it is that you're doing. And Jesus said it. He said, all sins can be forgiven. All sins. So to call him to repentance because you can be forgiven, repent, confess it. Just confess that to Jesus. Call out on him to save you. He can do it. But I, I think it also, because it, and I don't know, reading it is so hard to get there mentally because I, lo- I love Jesus, because he, he's rescued me, right? Uh, because I know him. And to hear to try to put yourself in the position of the Pharisees for a moment where, man, they just hate him. They just hate him. And it's like, you see him healing this person. You see him freeing these people from demons. You hear him teaching on grace and mercy and the loving kindness of God. Like, why hate that person? And and so it's hard to get myself there, but to think, okay, Jesus experienced that. And we know that. But what along with people thinking that he was crazy and so that we should expect that people are going to think the decisions that you've made because you're a Christ follower are crazy, what can we also expect? Because there'll be that camp. People that say, oh yeah, you know, bless them, love them, they're nice people, they're just, they're crazy, they're, they're just fanatics for Jesus, whatever, however they would say it. There's that camp, but there's also another camp. And just like there were people who looked at Jesus and all the good that he was doing and the light that he had brought into the world and they said, he's evil, he's demonic, this is darkness. There are people now who will say the same thing of us when we follow Jesus. Then not only will think, oh no, that's crazy. They'll say, no, 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 that's wicked. That's actually what's evil. Read this. 1 John 3.13, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you, right? It hated Jesus, so don't be surprised if it hates you. Matthew 5.11 and 12, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad, (laughs) 
It's backwards thinking, right? Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So don't be surprised when the world calls what we do and what we say and how we live evil. When we proclaim the sanctity of marriage, when we proclaim the sanctity of human life in the womb, when we proclaim that Jesus is God, who was born of a virgin, took on flesh, lived a sinless, righteous life, and died an atoning, sacrificial death, and rose in victory, when we proclaim that his is the only name by which anyone can be saved, when we proclaim that he calls on everyone everywhere to repent and to believe in him and to follow him, when we proclaim that, don't be surprised when they hate us. Don't be surprised when they call it evil. We should expect that. We should be glad and rejoice because we love to be uncomfortable and hated. No, but because we're being identified with Jesus. What greater honor, what greater privilege. And he throws in there, be glad and rejoice. Oh, and your reward is heaven. Our story ends with Jesus, he's back teaching again and the room's full, right? People can't get to him. And so somebody from the back's like, hey, your mom and your brothers are here and they want to see you. And Jesus take the, takes that opportunity to draw such a contrast between those that he's just warned and those who are his disciples. And he, he says this, read it again quickly. We're almost done. Verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. He loved his mom, no doubt. Absolutely. She's in heaven. Mary is one of my favorite people in the Bible to study her life and what she says. She's awesome. I, I recommend you never say anything bad about Jesus' mom, like in general, right? She's awesome. He loved her. He saved her. His brothers. We, we have the Testament, right? Like later in Acts. Like, yeah, his brothers and sisters are among us. Like James and Jude write epistles. Like he rescues him. He saves him. But what he's wanting to do is he's saying like, yeah, these people are, the warning is don't, don't commit an eternal sin. Don't harden your heart to the point where you would knowingly walk away from the truth. He says, no, no, be like these people. Because the reality is that to be a follower of Christ is to be closer to Christ than his own biological family. It's not that they didn't matter to him. He's just saying, oh, no, no, this is forever. This is eternal. And Jesus brings us into his family and loves us. And he says, it looks like this. It looks like obedience. It looks like obedience. John six forty. he says, these are my family, those who do the will of the Father, John six forty. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So before I pray, I encourage you to take opportunity this next week when you're around people that maybe you're not usually around. Pray for and look for and take opportunity to tell people who Jesus is, who he really is. Call him to follow them. And for some of you, I'd say, man, maybe you came in with all kinds of misconceptions about how far away you are from God. Our prayer is that you would hear of the grace of Jesus and know this. Jesus is more powerful than Satan. He's more powerful than us. He's more powerful than your sin. So don't, don't reject him. Come to him. Submit. He'll rescue you. Pray with me.